Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 76, Gear Matters. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Welcome back to the Filming with Josh podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. On this podcast, we talk about all things video, whether it's shooting or editing or storyboarding and script writing, pricing. We even have brought on an attorney before to talk about what should be in your contract and knowing just different parts of the law when it comes to video production. This is an all-inclusive video production podcast that talks about video related to any video industry. So if you are new to Filming with Josh, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I also want to encourage you to hop onto Facebook and type in Filming with Josh in your search bar. There you will find a group called Filming with Josh. That is a Facebook group that is a closed private group that goes along with this podcast. We just basically continue the conversation that we have on this podcast. And then also we have that as a place where you can come and post videos, ask for feedback, ask questions about gear you're looking to buy or about pricing or really anything. It's just a good community of like-minded people where you can come collaborate and uh, learn more about videos. So Filming with Josh on Facebook, type it in and ask to join the group today. It has been an awesome 2023 so far. The first two months of the year have been great for business. We've been able to uh, take on all kinds of different projects here at Rustic River Media to start the year, doing different things for um, Trout Fest and Guadalupe River Trout Unlimited, which is our local chapter of Trout Unlimited. It's actually the largest uh, chapter of Trout Unlimited in the United States, which is ironic because it's here in Texas <laughs> where we only have one Trout River. Uh, but I've been doing a lot of really cool stuff for them. That's all pro bono, but it's been a lot of fun um, donating and kind of giving my time toward this great organization um, and going to Trout Fest and helping them with Trout Fest. That's been an awesome thing to do this year. We're doing all kinds of projects for uh, a local church. We're doing all kinds of projects for um, my engineering firm client, my home building client, um, some of my you know repeat regular customers, and then we've been doing a lot of new uh, new projects for new clients. Uh, I picked up a really awesome uh, live stream that's coming up in June. It's a huge event, several days long. It's a kind of lot of prep work to get ready for it, a lot of logistics to be able to pull off what we're going to be doing for this multi-day live streaming event. I'm also, my company's going to be handling the AV for the in-person crowd of this event as well. So it's it's a lot of logistics, but that's something that I've been kind of navigating through here in the first couple months, prepping for, um, and picked up uh, some new photo clients. I, I swear, it, the last few years, the photography part of the business for has really started to, to pick up. I don't really market myself or market my company as a photography company. I market it as a video company, uh, but I've I've been getting more and more requests to do commercial or business photography, and this commercial corporate business photography has actually been really good because one, it's actually been pretty lucrative, and two, it opens up the door for me to get in with a new customer, and like once I kind of get my foot in the door from the photo side, I can then start pitching them from the video side. So this year has been really great because I've kind of been building on top of that. Um, tomorrow, I'm taking a production assistant of mine and we're going up to uh, Austin to do this giant corporate photo shoot. And, and it's just a great opportunity to get our foot in the door 
like I said, to then pitch to them video. Plus, it's a really great paying job anyway. So it's just been a really interesting start to the year. A lot of really cool projects. Um, been on the river filming some fishing content. It's just been a lot of fun. So been a great year. Yesterday, I just wrapped up a um, interview project for a nonprofit here in New Braunfels, Texas, where I live. That was a lot of fun. Uh, a lot of setup, a lot of teardown, but still a lot of fun. So it's just been been a really great start to the year. I hope it's been a good start of the year for you as well. But speaking of the start to the year, a project I was on last week is what has made me want to do today's podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what happened on a shoot I was on last Monday and then walk you through why that made me want to make today's podcast. And today's podcast is all about why gear matters, because it does matter. I think you've probably all heard the expression that it's not the Indian, it's the bow. And I definitely subscribe to that theory. I, I do think that your knowledge, your skills, what you know as an individual is the most important thing, but gear does matter. It does play a role. And I, I think a lot of times people want to think that it really comes down to just the person behind the camera more than anything. Um, but there's a reason why expensive equipment exists. It's because it matters. It does make a difference. And I want to just kind of walk through some examples of that, starting with what happened to me on this project last Monday. So last Monday, a friend of mine had hired me to do a, uh, a project. He hired me basically as a grip. So if you don't know what a grip is, a grip is essentially someone who handles like lighting equipment. And I have a ton of lights. I've got aperture 600Ds, 300Ds, 60Xs, Nova P300Cs, B7Cs, MCs, on and on and on. And I've got tons and tons of mo modifiers from spotlight mini zooms to Fresnels to barn doors, tons of scrims and fabrics, etc. I've got a lot of lighting gear. It's a big part of my business. And so I was hired to basically grip this uh, commercial project for my friend. And I also did a little bit of sound for him as well, just because I threw some sound gear in the truck in case he needed it. But it was kind of a lower budget shoot for him and 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 he basically just paid me to come out and grip and I was fine with that because he's a buddy of mine and I wanted to, to help him with this particular project but when I showed up for the shoot and I, I was getting ready to start lighting in fact I think I had already pulled out my first 600d and I went behind his camera he was using a c70 and he had an external monitor um, mounted to the top and this external monitor is going to be the basis of this podcast. <laughs> but he had a small HD Action 5 monitor mounted to the top of his C70. And I was using that as a reference to kind of get an idea of what my lighting was starting to look like. I'd already, I think at this time I had already pulled out a 600D and had it, uh, had like a light dome too. I wanted to, I love my light dome 150s, my favorite light dome, but I couldn't squeeze it into the kitchen that we were filming in. So I had a light dome 150 mounted. And then I also had, um, another 600D with a, uh, lantern 90 on it for adding fill light to the room. And then I had a 60X, um, set to spot and had little barn doors on it. And I was using it to create kind of a backlight for the scene. And I was sitting there, I had the lights, I had just got them set up and I stepped behind his C70 and I'm looking into the small HD monitor and I was blown away by how bad the lighting looked. I have a pretty good eye for lighting now because I've, I've 
been doing this for well over a decade and I have all this lighting gear and I use all this lighting gear on almost every project that I can. And so I'm, I'm constantly manipulating and painting with light and I have a pretty good understanding when I'm doing something in person of what it's probably going to look like on the monitor, which is why it threw me off when every time I look at his monitor, the image I was looking at was so drastically different than what I expected it to look like. Because in person, the, the lighting looked nice and soft, but in the monitor, it was ridiculously bright and harsh. And I kept thinking to myself, what is going on? So I would dial my lights down. I'd even position my lights and move them around and point them in different ways. I took the light dome off at one point and swapped to something else because I just couldn't get the light that I was going for. And after like 20 something minutes of jacking around with my lights, trying to make it look better. I was behind a C70 and I was dumbfounded. I was like, why does this look so bad? And then I happened to glance at the camera monitor, the C70 monitor. And I noticed how drastic of a difference there was between the small HD Action 5 and the C70's built-in monitor. The C70 monitor was way more in line with what I thought the image looked like, whereas the small HD Action 5 was a disaster. The lights looked completely way too bright. Cabinets were reflecting the light so harshly. Everything was just blown out, and I just couldn't understand why. But looking at the C70 monitor, it all of a sudden clicked. It was the monitor. It's the, it's the small HD Action 5 monitor that was the problem. If you don't know what the small HD Action 5 is, it is a 300 something dollar monitor by small HD, and it is essentially their budget monitor. And it's a crap monitor, if I'm being honest. I knew it was a crap monitor. I'd read it was a crap monitor. And then now seeing it in person, I can tell you it is a crap monitor. And look, I'm a huge small HD fan. I've ran small HD monitors basically my whole career. I've got a whole bunch of them. I've got an, a Cine 5, which I paid like $1,600 or $1,700 for. I've got an ND 5 that I paid like $1,300 for. I've got a Focus 7 and a Focus 5, which are some older models that I still use on my C-cams or for live streaming. They're great monitors. I mean, Small HD is known for making phenomenal monitors. They have arguably the best monitors in the entire business, which is why it's really a head-scratcher to me that they release the Action 5. Because the Action 5 is nothing like their professional monitors. It's got a crap screen, and it doesn't even have all the tools. It has a fraction of the tools. See, part of what makes small HD monitors so good beyond just the monitor and screen quality is the tools that they have. I mean, yesterday on the shoot I was on, the interview shoot I was on, I was using their color picker tools, their EL zone tools. I mean, I'm using all these different tools. It's just so many amazing tools. The Action 5 doesn't have any of that. It's got a very dumbed down version of their operating system, which is a big proponent of buying small HD monitors to begin with is their operating system because it's arguably the best that there is. But here I am, I'm with this budget monitor that's got a really dumbed down version of their professional monitor tools. And to top it off, the screen is a disaster. It's horrible. It is every bit of a 300 something dollar screen. It is claim to have 2,000 nits of brightness. That's like one of the selling points. But it's what I call fake brightness. See, there are a lot of budget monitors today that claim to have these crazy brightness levels, like 2,000 nits, like the Action 5. 
But most of the time, that's what I call fake brightness, where it's just they're jacking the brightness of the screen up so much to, to, to hit those nits that in the process, they're actually altering what the image looks like. It's not just brightening like the screen like you would on your iPhone when you brighten your iPhone. It's just brightening the screen. Instead, it's actually changing what the image looks like. It's not just brightening the screen. It's, it's changing the exposure of the image itself. And that's what I call fake brightness. When I compare the Action 5's 2,000 nits of fake brightness versus my Cine 5, which has 2,000 nits of legit brightness, that that monitor is a $1,700 monitor that I run on my FX6. It's an amazing monitor, and, and the two are completely different. The, the 2,000 nits brightness on the Cine 5 is just doing what your iPhone does. It's just basically brightening the screen, but without altering the image in any way. And it looks correct, whereas the Action 5 is a just walking disaster. And most budget monitors are that way. But you see them all over the market, and people buy them because they're $300, and you get 2,000 nits of brightness. So all these different brands that have these budget monitors out there, people are flocking to them because they're cheap, and they have this ridiculous brightness rating. However, what they a lot of times don't realize is that a lot of these monitors don't have all the tools, or if they do have tools, they're not very accurate the way that like small HD's professional monitors are, for example. And they also don't realize a lot of times what it's doing to the image on the screen. Like my friend had no idea that what we were looking at was incorrect. I put the two together by looking at a C70 monitor and then looking at the small HD monitor. And I was like, dude, that's not right. <laughs> and I told him I had, I didn't have my Cine 5 in the truck, but I did have my ND5 in my truck. And I said, look, I have a small HD ND5 in my truck. Do you mind if I swap monitors on your camera? And he was like, sure. So I went to the truck, grabbed my uh, ND5, which I had on an A1 and I brought it in and swapped the monitors out. And it made a humongous difference. Now the image looked correct. It, it had the proper amount of brightness, not fake brightness. It wasn't changing the exposure or anything like that. The image just looked correct. And I had access to all my tools. So at that point, when I swapped monitors, and by the way, we have just been wasting time on this shoot. And we have actors that are there waiting on us to get the lights set up. But, but we were spending and wasting time screwing around with the lights because I couldn't get the lighting dialed in and it was all because of the monitor. So now that I have the correct monitor on, an ND5, something that actually shows me what <laughs> what's going on in the room and has really good accurate tools on it that I can use, like EL Zone, for example, I now was able to see that my lights were too dim. Whereas with the Action 5, I thought they were too bright. So I was able to make the, the necessary adjustments and we were able to get the shoot started. But it cost us a ton of time and it literally, it literally made me change the way I lit the scene. I was moving lights, I was changing brightness on lights, I was removing lights, all because of this cheap monitor. It was making me make bad decisions on set because the monitor was cheap and crappy and inaccurate. Gear matters. The 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 minute I put the ND5 on, we were able to get to work and and do what, what we needed to do to get the image to look correct. And and that is just a great example of why gear matters. And that's what made me want to start doing this podcast today because I, I feel like there's this this misunderstanding that you can buy all this affordable gear today and just have for a fraction of the price the same type of thing you can get for a more expensive 
better known product. But the reality is, is there is still a reason why those more expensive, better known products exist. And that's because they can directly impact your work the way that this more expensive monitor I grabbed out of my truck directly impacted in a positive way our work, whereas this cheap monitor negatively impacted our work. So I, my friend, after looking at that, he has a couple of Atomos monitors as well. Uh, the Shinobis, which are also a walking disaster. They're some of the most inaccurate color monitors I've ever seen. And their operating system, I can't stand it, especially coming from small HD, which has got an amazing operating system. And my friend, after looking at my monitor, he's like, dude, I'm going to sell my Shinobis and my Action 5 and I'm going to buy uh, a professional small HD monitor because I can see now how big of a difference it makes. He's like, I'd rather sell all those monitors and just get one really good one so that I, I make better decisions on set. And he saw that firsthand why that matters. He saw why gear matters. So gear does matter. Yes, the Indian and the bow analogy does, you know, play a, f a factor and a role in your video work, just like it does in any other industry, whether you're a carpenter or, or whatever. But but in video and specifically, while it does matter, gear matters too and can make a big difference on, on how you shoot things and how you approach things. Other examples of this, uh, I kind of made a list here that I'm just going to kind of read off some things that that uh, I think about when I think about gear matters. Um, but one of the things that I have on my list next is tripods. If I had a dollar for every time I would ran across someone that had dropped six to 10 or $12,000 on a camera system, like just the camera body and accessories, but was running like a Manfrotto 502 fluid head on a pair of cheap sticks that they paid $300 for the whole setup, I'd be able to retire. Sorry if you hear my baby crying in the background. Um, I'm recording this podcast from, from home, so I have no control over that. Anyway, I see that constantly. I'll see people that go out and they'll like drop $6,000 in a red Komodo body, and then they'll buy all the parts and accessories and memory cards and everything they need for it, and they'll end up spending between like eight and ten dollars or $12,000 on their whole entire setup for just the camera. But then they'll have this really, really crappy, dinky tripod. I ran into a guy once... I ran into a guy once that literally had a Sony 400-2.8 with a, an A7R 3 This was before the new generation of cameras was out. So he had a Sony 400-2.8, which is like a $12,000 prime lens. And he had this um, pretty decent camera, like a $3,000 camera body. It was a Sony A7R 3 or might have been 3500 at the time. So he had like fifteen plus thousand dollars in the camera and the lens, plus he had memory and everything else. So he probably had like 16, 16 and a half thousand dollars just between the camera and the lens and the memory cards and batteries. And I asked him where his tripod was because we were, he was going to film some wildlife and his tripod was in the bed of his truck rolling around. Like he, he's told me that's where he keeps it. He's like, Oh yeah, I just, I just keep it back there. It's, I just always leave it back there. And I was like, what about like when it rains or you're driving down a dirt road and all that? He's like, Oh, I don't care. It's just tripod. Doesn't matter. And so he had this like $250 tripod. That was a really crap Manfrotto tripod in the bed of his truck that was just collecting deer, uh, deer <laughs> collecting dirt and grime and, rain and everything else on and not to mention it was just rolling around just banging on stuff banging in the bed of the truck but he's just like oh it's just tripod doesn't matter so he has this like sixteen and a half thousand dollar camera set up with this 200 something dollar tripod and we were filming wildlife and i'm telling you his footage was ridiculously shaky it was horrible not to mention his 
his tripod could not counterbalance the weight of his camera and didn't even have a fluid system in it or really much of a counterbalance system. And it squeaked and cracked and made all kinds of noises from all the dirt and dust from driving down dirt roads that have gotten on it. I mean, it was horrible. But hey, he had the 4028 Prime and the, the fancy camera. So to him, he was good to go. But man, I would I there's no way I would have paid for his footage. It was horrible. I don't care how fancy of a prime lens he had. I don't care what kind of camera body he had. At the end of the day, his footage was terrible because it was so shaky. It was awful. There's no way I would, as a client, be be happy with the footage that he was going to deliver. It was just awful, 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 awful. But I see this all the time, man, where people will will buy really expensive camera setups and then buy really, really crappy tripods. I would encourage people to invest in a good tripod. And I'll tell you, so I'm a, I'm a Sockler fan. You don't have to get Sockler, but I'm a Sockler fan. And I've got an FSB 10 on a pair of Flowtech 100 sticks. That setup cost me close to five grand. And then I've got an FSB 8 on another pair of kind of older style carbon sticks that Sockler made. And it costs like $2,500 to $3,000 for that setup. And so I've got, between those two tripods, I've got close to eight grand in them. And I know that sounds expensive, but tripods are a career long investment. If you get a really good tripod, you pay anywhere from three, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars on a tripod. I know it sounds like a lot of money, but you pay that one time and it'll last you your career so long as you don't do what this guy did and throw it in the bed of your truck and leave it back there. But if you actually take care of it, it'll last you your career. See, you're, you're going to go through six, eight, ten, twelve thousand $12,000 cameras all the time in your career. You'll buy one, use it for three, four, five years, and then you'll get the next one for three, four, five years and another one for three, four, five years. But you could buy a tripod once and it'll last you your career. And you don't, and if you don't want to spend that much, at least spend like $1,500 or two or $3,000 and get a good tripod with a good fluid head. Because it's a very important tool. You don't want to be the guy delivering shaky footage, but having a, a you know a red mounted to it or a big 4028 prime. You don't want to be that guy. Like that's not a good look. You know, I my clients expect me to deliver good results, and a part of that is having good framing and nice stable footage. It's one thing if you're shooting handheld. Like I shot Trout Fest like a little over a week ago and I shot the whole thing handheld and had a handheld look, but that's different. But you know, when I'm filming for commercial clients or corporate clients, or I'm doing projects for uh, like Ted talks or things like that, like I can't have, I can't have shaky footage. I can't deliver that to my clients and I'm not going to spend all my time in posts using warp stabilizer to try to fix it, you know, and, and even that's not going to completely fix it. You know what I mean? It's like invest in a good tripod. It matters. And the thing is, is that I, I can tell a lot about a shooter and how experienced they are based on their tripod. And I know that sounds crazy, but take that guy, for example, with the 4028 Prime and the Sony a7R3, but the crap tripod. Take that guy, for example. Yeah, he had an expensive, fancy Prime lens with this nice mirrorless camera, but I knew after he showed me his tripod that was in the bed of his truck that he told me he left back there and I saw how cheap and crappy and beat up it was, I instantly knew that this guy must be an amateur. And he was. He Come to find out, he just had a lot of money, but he hadn't even been in video for a year. But it told me everything I needed to know just by looking at his tripod. And that's actually one of the first questions I ask freelancers when I hire them to do a contract shoot for me. 
I'll ask them, like if it's someone I've never worked with before, like they'll send me their work or whatever. But one of the things I ask them is, hey, what kind of tripod do you have? And if they are bragging about their Komodo or about their, you know, their C300 Mark III or their C70 or whatever, if they're bragging about their camera, but then they tell me that, oh yeah, I've just got like this Benro or I don't even know what model it is, or I've got this cheap man Frodo or I've got this... Asian brand I bought on Amazon, it gets the job done. And that tells me that that person hasn't been in video long enough to understand that the tripod is a very important piece of gear. And if you think about it, if you go on a, if you go on a, a, a big budget shoot, I'm talking like a big commercial project or a big doc project or a big movie project, you are not going to see a Manfrotto or a Benro tripod on set. If you do, it's someone who's doing some like behind the scenes work, but you are not going to actually see a tripod like that being used. You're going to see O'Connor's, you're going to see Sockler's, you might see a Miller on the little bit cheaper side, but you're, that's what you're going to see. Cartoni, those are what you're going to see on bigger budget sets. And there's a reason because it's such an essential and important piece of equipment. So that's why when I interview freelancers who want to shoot for me, that's why one of the first questions I ask them is, what kind of tripod do you own? Because if they have a 4028 Prime and it's A7R3, but a really crappy beat up tripod, I can tell a whole lot about you. But if they've got a, an FSB10 or an FSB8 by Sockler on a pair of nice Sockler sticks or something like that, and, and they're running a, a 10 year old FS700, that tells me that they understand the fundamentals of video and I will trust hiring them more than the other guy. That's something I literally do. I've done that a lot uh, over the years. Gear matters. Invest in a good tripod because it matters. Microphones, same thing. All the time I see people running these new DJI mics and Rode Wireless goes. And I'm just going to be honest, those are not professional mics. Look, if you're using them in the wedding industry or something like that, and you're just going to like throw a lav on like a a pastor or like a bride or groom or something like that's one thing. But if you're doing commercial work, if you're doing corporate work, if you're doing doc projects, if you're doing TV, if you're doing anything like that, those are not professional quality mics. They're not. I'm sorry, but they're not. You cannot call a transmitter and receiver combination that is based on rechargeable batteries, a professional mic setup. It's just not like, could you imagine being on a commercial shoot where you're getting paid, you know, five, 10, 15, $20,000 and having to tell your client, oh man, batteries on my, my, my lobs died. We're going to have to wait for a while and charge them. <laughs> what? You can't have that. Could you imagine being on a dock shoot and something really important is happening that you can't recapture and all of a sudden your rechargeable batteries die inside your mics and now you can't film anymore because the batteries are dead. Like, like that's not, those aren't pro mics. Again, if you're just using them for something really small, like at a wedding or whatever, like that's fine. I have a, I have a set of Rode wireless goes that I put on my GoPro when I'm deer hunting or duck hunting just for fun for myself. Like that's fine. But if you're going to go to a commercial shoot, a corporate shoot, a doc project, an event, anything like that, like those are not pro mics. You got to have mics that you can change batteries on. Also, most of those mics can't take inter, like interchangeable lobs. Interchangeable meaning like you can't use different brands of lobs. The lob is actually where the audio comes from, the audio quality. I mean, the, the transmitter and receiver can affect the audio quality if 
there's like crackling or breaking or interference or something. But the actual sound comes from the mic on the lav itself. So for example, I run Sony wireless transmitters and receivers, but my lavs are actually Sanken. The Sony stock lavs are okay. They're good if you're getting started. And I keep mine as backups, but my everyday lavs are Sanken COS 11Ds. And they're, they're pretty pricey. They're like four or $500 lavs. And I'm not telling you, you have to go out and buy that today. But if you buy a lot of these really cheap transmitters and receivers out there, especially ones that, you know, the kind that have built in rechargeable batteries, a lot of them you can you cannot buy aftermarket lavs for because they don't they don't accept them, right? They have some proprietary cheap mounts and that's it. Whereas if you get Electrosonics or Sony or Sennheiser, for example, those usually come with pretty decent stock lavs and you can upgrade down the road to Sankins or Countrymans or Trams, some of the more industry standard lavs. Because lavs, again, are where the sound comes from. My Sync and COS 11Ds are so rich and powerful compared to any stock lav I've ever owned. They're amazing. And you don't have to go out and buy an aftermarket lav if you're just getting started. But wouldn't you want to have the option to upgrade to that down the road, right? Like if you're investing in transmitters and receivers, don't you want to upgrade path? I mean, that's what I did. When I, when I got into video, I bought the Sony system. It takes, you know interchangeable batteries. I've had them for like 10 years and I was able to upgrade the lobs over the years to the Sankins. It gave me an upgrade path and I can change batteries. Imagine that. So like those, those are professional mics, Sennheiser, Sony's, Electrosonics, mics, transmitters, receivers like that, that take interchangeable batteries that you can upgrade to uh, the lobs to down the road. Like those are professional mics. If you show up on set with a DJI wireless go and the batteries die, that is a bad look, man. That is a really bad look. And again, gear matters, man. Gear matters. Same thing goes with like shotgun mics. I'll see people all the time, they'll buy a shotgun mic and then they'll use it on camera and then they'll use it indoors for booming and they'll use it for everything because, hey, it's my, this is my everything gun mic. But a shotgun mic is actually a bad choice most of the time for indoor booming because of the reflections. I did a whole post on this in Filming with Josh. So if you want to learn more, go to Filming with Josh and in the search bar, type in uh, mic patterns, and you'll see an, a, a, like a, an article I wrote uh, last month that talks about different mic patterns and why shotgun mics are typically a bad choice for indoor booming. But the reality is, is that shotgun mics most of the time are bad choice of mic for indoor booming because they pick up on reflections, and most rooms have reflections or echo, as a lot of people know it by. And my, shotgun mics magnify the presence of reflections, whereas cardioid and supercardioid mics handle that much better. Gear matters. So if you're going to be booming indoors, you need to have the correct mic for the job. In some situations, you can get by with a shotgun mic if there's a lot of furniture and, and carpets and things and there's not a lot of reflections in the room. But if you walk in a room and you clap your hands and you hear an echo, a shotgun mic is a bad choice of mic. And if your whole plan was to run a boom mic and you can hear echo, that's not going to be a good time. So if you have invested in cardioid or super cardioid mics, you can simply swap over to those mics and still be able to boom and still get great audio. Yesterday, I ran Sennheiser MKH 8050 super cardioid mic for my indoor booms for my interview setup, and it sounded amazing. It sounded amazing. It sounded so good that I, I hardly want to touch the audio in post, but I used the correct mic. Gear matters, and having the right mic for the right situation 
matters. Lights is another example. There's a lot of affordable mics on the market to uh, lights on the market today. Um, and a lot of them kind of like monitors, cheap monitors will claim to have these really great brightness ratings. And I, I'm all for it. I'm all for affordable bright lights, but you have to pay attention to the CRI and TLCI scores. That is basically how color accurate the lights are. If you buy a daylight balance light, for example, that's really bright, but if it leans green, for example, that's going to affect your work. Just imagine buying some cheap brand of light that's got some crazy brightness rating and you pay 250 or $300 for it. You're so excited. You get it. You show up, you've got two of them, you know, you drop $500 on a set. You're so pumped. You go to shoot an interview and then you get home. And for some reason, the skin tones on the people you interviewed, uh, look sickly and green. And you might be like, why, why is that? Well, it could be the lights because cheap lights, a lot of times will have bad uh, CRI or TLCI scores where they basically lean a certain direction and can actually affect the quality of the light. Having really clean light goes a long way in making sure you don't somehow taint the images. The interviews I did yesterday, the indoor lights that were built into the room, it was for a, a nonprofit that helps people um, overcome uh, like alcohol and, and uh, drug addictions. And the lights in the room had a very nasty green tint to it. And when I turned off all the lights and fired up my Aperture 600Ds, which have a really clean white daylight light with good CRI and TLCI scores, the, the whole entire room went from this kind of green, ugly look to just this clean, beautiful look. And it was all because my lights have such a good, clean score and are very color accurate. And the client immediately said, man, I wish we had lights like this in here all the time. This looks so different. It changes the whole look of the room, just the color of the light. And the lights in the ceiling were daylight balanced lights, but they were horrible, horrible looking because they had this nasty green tint. Well, camera lights can have the same problem. And so making sure that when you do invest in lights, that they have good um, TLCI or CRI scores goes a long way in making sure that you're going to have good, clean light on a shoot and that you're not going to be tainting your image in a negative way. If you don't know what uh, CRI or TLCI scores are, that's okay. My suggestion is if you're interested in buying lights, go over to Gaffer and Gear on YouTube and watch his videos on whatever light model it is that you are interested in buying. He usually reviews most of the different lights that comes out. On the at all the different price points, and he's a professional um, grip and gaffer. Like that's what he does for a living, and he does an amazing job of uh, reviewing the 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 brightness of lights, the pros and cons of lights, and giving you CRI and TLCI scores. And if you don't know what the scores mean, that's okay. He'll tell you if it's good or bad. Um, but he's a legit. He's not just some YouTuber that's like, oh, check out this cheap light. Like he's an actual professional grip and gaffer. Go watch his content. Get get feedback from someone who really does it for a living and find out whether the light that you're interested in buying is good or bad and is color accurate or not. Because again, if you buy a bad quality light, it'll affect your image negatively. Gear matters. Matte boxes is another thing. There's tons of affordable matte boxes on the market today, but a lot of them take proprietary mounts, take the ultra popular you know, Polar Pro base camp matte box. I actually have two of them in my office. I bought them once just to try them. But the problem is, is that they, they, they may be okay design, but they take proprietary filter sizes. So you can never go and buy 
different brands of filters, different brands of, and, and different styles of diffusion, different brands and styles of gradient filters or anything like that because you're stuck with their proprietary mount. And so now you have no upgrade path. You might have a cheap monitor, I mean, excuse me, a cheap matte box that you can put um, you know, filters in, but you're stuck in this system that is proprietary and there's no upgrade path. Whereas if you bought a really good matte box to begin with, even if it's a little more expensive, but if that matte box takes standard filter sizes and you have an upgrade path. I like wooden camera and bright tangerine. I'd recently picked up a wooden camera Zipbox Pro. I love it. I'm gonna buy a second one. And they take standard matte box or standard filter sizes, four by fours, four by five, six fives, um, as well as uh, four and a half inch filters in the back uh, for, for round filters. It's a great matte box. My uh, bright tangerines are similar, but they take 138 size round filters in the back and four by four and four by and four by five, six fives in the front. But great matte box takes standard standard size filters so there's an upgrade path for you or even if it's not just an upgrade path but if you're freelancing for another production company and they have filters they want you to use your map box will be able to use their filters so invest in quality map boxes that will allow you to have an upgrade path and to be able to use standard size filters down the road um, another example of this of where gear matters is mirrorless per versus proper video cameras. Yes, you can buy a mirrorless camera and you can deck it out and you can build into this big Franken rig that can do all the things that a proper video camera would do. Or you could just buy a proper video camera to, to begin with. <laughs> and I recommend that if you are in the commercial world, if you're in the corporate world, if you're doing um, dock projects or anything like that, like get a proper video camera. It goes a long way. If you're doing if you're doing real estate or weddings, I actually think a mirrorless camera is a better choice. But if you are doing dock work, commercial work, corporate work, uh, anything like that, a proper video camera goes a long way. You don't have to worry about overheating. You've got filters built in. You've got uh, uh, built-in proper audio inputs, etc. And here's the other thing. Your clients will look at you and think you're legit. I was on a shoot last year where um, this really, really large company had this new marketing girl that they had hired to work for for them. And when we were on set, the first thing she said when I pulled out my FX6 was, ah, finally, someone with a real camera. And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, well, the last company I worked at, everybody we would hire would show up with these photo looking cameras, but this is like a real camera. She's like, this is obviously going to be a, a better shoot. And maybe, maybe the people that they hired at the last place she worked were better than me. I don't know. But the appearance of a proper video camera went a long way. Gear matters. It actually affected the way my client looked at me just because my camera was bigger and looked like a proper video camera. Not to mention, I don't have to build a Franken rig for it to work. So gear matters there. Yeah, you can do a lot of things with a mirrorless camera. I ran into a guy the other day at, at, at Trout Fest that I was filming. He was there shooting some photos for fun on his newly purchased A7R5. And he's like, I just got into video and I just don't understand the point of having a camera like what you have there because I have my FX6. He's like, this camera that I have can do everything yours can do but it's much smaller and lighter and cheaper. So like, I just don't get the point of your camera. And I'm like, well, my camera has way less rolling shutter and way less better low light performance and built-in ND filters and four channels of audio built in and the proper ergonomics and actually looks like a video camera and has things like cache recording and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, SDI inputs, timecode inputs, you name it. And I was like, dude, like that is, that is huge. Like it's a totally different camera body. And it's a more professional camera. And if you buy a camera like this, it can open up more doors for you because gear matters. Lastly, like the last thing I think about when I think about like where people cheapen out on is lenses. A lot of people will buy 
really cheap lenses and will say, oh, it's just as sharp as the more expensive lens, and maybe it is, but sharpness is just one category. Focus breathing, um, how well it manual focuses, like that's a huge thing. I mean, man, a lot of cheap lenses have a terrible manual focus where the throw is so fast and or maybe it's the throw is dependent upon speed and so there's like no way you could pull focus accurately and repeatedly um, by hand or even with a follow focus wheel because the focus ring is horrible. So buying lenses that have a good manual focus, that have uh, not a lot of focus breathing, or if you do, they do, I have a couple lenses that have breathing, but fortunately Sony has a correction for that in, in software and camera. But, you know, paying attention to things like that, paying attention to what is the, uh, and maybe it's sharp, but what is the chromatic aberration like, or what is the what is the uh, the flares? What do they look like? Are they really pretty or do they look pretty bad? So lenses are another category where I see people, they'll drop all their money on a camera body and get a really crappy tripod and some really crappy lenses, but, but feel really great about themselves because they got this really expensive camera. And I really think you'd be way better off buying a cheaper camera, even if it's an older model that you get used and spending some of the rest of that money on tripod and better lenses and better mics. The whole point to this podcast is that gear matters. It does make a difference in your work. Yes, it is the Indian a lot of times, but the bow can go a long way. And if you have the proper tools that don't have rechargeable batteries that can die on set on you, or that have you know the, the, the proper brightness in the monitor, or that have stable tripods or whatever, if you have the right tools for the job and you've invested in it, and, and, and proper equipment, it'll go a long way and will really affect the outcome of your work, especially as you learn to utilize these tools to the fullest. And beyond that, it gives you equipment that you can hang on to for a long, long, long time. Buy once, cry once, right? Like that's my philosophy. Gear does matter. That's why if you were to look at my gear list today, you would probably think it's a bit ridiculous And because I have a lot of gear. Uh, and I have a lot of expensive gear, but I do understand how much it affects my ability to do things on my projects. And that's why I've spent money and invested on it. And I'm not saying you have to go out and drop a ton of money today, but I am trying to encourage you, if you're getting ready to buy a new monitor, or if you're getting ready to buy a new tripod, if you're getting ready to buy some new mics, before you do, really think about it and ask yourself, is this a real professional mic or is, this, is it just something that's being hyped up on YouTube? You know, is there is there negatives to this that could actually affect me down the road? And if the answer is yes, don't buy it. Save your money and save up to buy something else. Anyway, I hope this podcast uh, serves you in some capacity and stops you from buying something that maybe you probably shouldn't buy or encourages you to invest in, in that thing that you've been wanting, but you feel like maybe it's too expensive. I want to encourage you to like really think about that, make good investments. I hope this podcast does that for you. Thanks guys again for listening to today's podcast. If you want more information on filming with Josh, you can go to my website at rusticriver.media and click on the filming with Josh tab where you'll find uh, links to articles and uh, you, uh, some some small Vimeo videos I've made in the past and uh, also to my podcast. And again, go to filming with Josh on Facebook and ask to join the group today and join our awesome growing group of Facebook filming with Joshers. Anyway, thanks guys. I'll see you there. Take care. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.